Okay, <clears throat> this is uh, Unit 5 of Great Heroes of the Great Reformation. And we have in the past looked a bit at sort of the historical setting of the Reformation in terms of the, uh, the end of the medieval uh, sort of feudalist society and the, its replacement with Renaissance humanism and the rise of uh, Reformation thinkers who were driven to their Reformation thought in large part because they'd embraced the, uh, the value of, of going to original sources for what they believed. Uh, the Renaissance was all about doing that and Martin Luther, John Knox, John Calvin, uh, Theodore Beza, uh, 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 Martin Bootser and others, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, sought to go back to the scriptures themselves as the source of the Christian faith and to find out afresh what was there. Well, today we come to John Knox and the Scottish Reformation. Uh, Knox is a fascinating, fascinating character. If you ever get a chance, uh, you should read um, a, a good biography of him. One is by a man named Hume Brown, a great Scottish historian. Um, and his life could be made into a really excellent mini-series, uh, a drama mini-series. There's, uh, there's all kinds of wonderful uh, conflict in his life, uh, and he's, a, he's an amazing man. So we'll get to know this man a little bit this morning uh, by looking at the Scottish Reformation. Um, <clears throat> Scotland's a small country. And in the grand scheme of things in 16th century Europe, Scotland was a backwater. And yet, pretty much all historians of the Reformation consider what happened in Scotland to be among the most important things that happened in the Reformation. Why is that? Why is it so important? Well, partly it's a matter of contemporary geopolitics. There was a rivalry going on at that time between England and France, and Scotland was stuck in the middle of that, of that uh, rivalry. It, it tended to be loyal to France because the French repeatedly defended the Scots from the English who were constantly invading Scotland, taking it over, imposing a government on the Scots. If you've ever seen uh, films like uh, uh, Oh, come on. Um, Braveheart. Braveheart, yes. Uh, you understand a little bit of that background. Well, the French tended to try to help the Scots, not because they loved the Scots all that much, but because that meant that the Scots were a counterbalance uh, against the, the threat of the English to France. Because, of course, all the kings of England claimed to be the kings of France as well. Uh, that is uh, still a part of the title of the monarch of England, is that the monarch is is the monarch of France as well. Well, um, <clears throat> Scotland uh, resented England's claim to the throne. In uh, <clears throat> Henry VIII, whom we talked about last week in terms of the English Reformation, lobbied King James V of Scotland. One quick thing for you to, to just know for future reference. You all have heard of King James I, right? King James I of England, and after his name, we get the, uh, the King James Bible, uh, the authorized version. He was King James VI of Scotland. Same man, James the, uh, the Sixth and James I. 
And that's because in 1603, he inherited the throne of England from Elizabeth when she died, Elizabeth I, but he was already the king of Scotland, inheriting the throne from his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, which we'll see about a little bit later. But King James V, James VI's father, uh, was, was uh, obviously prior to him and prior to his, uh, his daughter Mary. And um, Henry VIII lobbied James to follow his own break with Rome. Remember, Henry had decided he needed to get a divorce or an annulment of his marriage so that he could get a male heir in order to preserve the lineage and, and prevent uh, further wars from, of competing factors for the throne. So he wanted James to side with him on that. Francis I, the king of, of France, lobbied him to stay loyal to the papacy. Uh, so James was getting these two uh, different messages at the same time. At the time, James Beaton was Archbishop of St. Andrews, which was the highest ecclesiastical position in Scotland uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, his nephew David arranged for James to marry Mary of Guise, who was uh, uh, a daughter of one of the most powerful noble families in France. So that obviously kind of tilted Scotland toward the French. Um, <clears throat> and uh, then David Beaton uh, <coughs> followed his, his uncle in the uh, archbishopric and eventually uh, became a cardinal as well. He became a cardinal in 1539 and the dominant figure in James's government. We have to keep remembering that in those days, church government and civil government were very, very closely linked together in all the European countries. We're not accustomed to that here in the United States, but that was certainly the case then. Beaton sought to suppress what he considered to be the Protestant heresy, and so he arranged for the arrest and trial and conviction and various punishments, occasionally even death, for those who were preaching the Protestant gospel. In 1542, Henry VIII invaded Scotland and defeated the Scots quite miserably at the Battle of Solway Moss. Uh, and James V died very shortly after that, so his daughter Mary succeeded him to the throne. So James V dies, Mary becomes the Queen of Scotland. She's the one we know of as Mary, Queen of Scots. And you might have seen movies about her life, quite a, quite a colorful life. Um, the, uh, under Mary, Queen of Scots, though she was a passionate Roman Catholic, Protestants tended to dominate the civil side of government, and one of those was a man named James Hamilton, the Earl of Arran. Um, and he sort of assumed power uh, as not a regent, but a very high counselor to Mary, Queen of Scot Scots. Um, and this pro-Reformation pro government, uh, led by Aaron, or Hamilton, uh, for the first time permitted legally the reading of the Bible in English in Scotland. Before that, it had actually been a crime. Um, and when that happened, copies of Tyndale's New Testament, we talked about that last week in terms of the English Reformation, 
copies of Tyndale's New Testament began pouring into Scotland, and John Knox would later write in his history of the Reformation in Scotland that, uh, that Tyndale's New Testament was lying almost upon every gentleman's table. Now that was a very unusual thing. Very few people owned even a small part of the Bible in their own families prior to that time. Now people all over Scotland were getting it. So partly the Scottish Reformation is important in terms of contemporary geopolitics, but partly also it's important in terms of long-term uh, political consequences. The Scottish Reformation bore fruit in what are called the Covenanters, uh, Presbyterians who formed covenants or bands among themselves to achieve particular ends, uh, mainly for the, the, the transformation of Scotland into a, uh, a devoutly and, and uniformly Protestant Christian nation. Um, these were major defenders of limited government by covenanted consent of the governed, the rule of law rather than the rule of men, and the right of the governed to resist and even if necessary to overthrow and replace tyrannous government. And that, linked with some English Puritans' similar views, heavily shaped the thought of American colonists at the time of the American Revolution. All right, so, and I'll get back to that as we come to the end of the talk this morning. Um, a couple of early lights of the Scottish Reformation. The first one is uh, Patrick Hamilton. You remember uh, Hamilton, the Earl of Arran, was, uh, was the chief counselor to... Uh, Mary Queen of Scots and a, a great leader in, in Scotland. Well, Patrick Hamilton was a member of that same family, or Hamilton. Uh, he was heavily influenced as a scholar by Erasmus, so he had Renaissance leanings, right? And then by Luther, he went and actually studied in Wittenberg under Martin Luther. And in February of 1528, because he was preaching Lutheran doctrine uh, all over Scotland, but especially in the area around St. Andrews on the uh, east coast of Scotland, uh, he was arrested for preaching those doctrines and tried very quickly uh, under Cardinal Beaton and uh, uh, the, you know, David Beaton's father, James Beaton, and uh, was burned at the stake the next day outside the castle of St. Andrews. And <clears throat> up above here, uh, let's see, for you it's going to be somewhere over here. Yeah, this is, a, this is a picture of a plaque on the fence around the castle of St. Andrews that says that uh, nearby are initials of Patrick Hamilton in the cobblestone street. And so that's what you're seeing in... Gee, I wish I could show these things easily for you. But that's what you see right here, P and H, and that's in the cobblestone street. You can still go and see that there in St. Andrews. Uh, we had the fun of doing that when, I lived, when we lived in St. Andrews for nine months at the start of my PhD studies. And then there is next to that a, a picture of Pat Patrick Hamilton himself. So at age 24, he became the first Protestant martyr in Scotland. Uh, George Wishart, uh, followed him up. Uh, Wishart translated the Swiss Confession, which had been done largely by, uh, by uh, uh, John Calvin, into English. 
and he led the Scots, the Scottish reformers or Protestants, from Lutheran thinking into reformed or Calvinistic thinking. Uh, he was a schoolmaster. He taught New Testament Greek, and like Hamilton before him, he was accused of heresy. He managed to escape. He fled to England, and in 1543 returned, or approximately 1543, returned under Hamilton's pro-reform government. So he was able to preach freely. Uh, and at that time, he was accompanied by a young priest by the name of John Knox while he preached in East Lothian, an area near Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, but soon, uh, Beaton regained control. He arrested Wishart. He tried him for heresy at St. Andrew's Cathedral. Wishart stood boldly on, on the authority of Scripture and gained a lot of popular sympathy, but was nonetheless condemned and burned at the stake March 1 of 1546. And the Protestants remembered that. Um, if there's anything that you can say characterizes the Scottish Covenanters, it's that they're people who really remember their history. They look back into their history and they are inspired by it. Um, <clears throat> But it didn't take very long memory for them to respond to Beaton. On May 29 of 1546, so in other words, just to, uh, about two months later, a party of extreme Protestants led by several high-ranking Scots uh, nobles broke into Cardinal Beaton's apartment in the castle at St. Andrews, urged him to repent, assured him that it was nothing personal but that idolatry would poison any nation and his use of the mass, the Roman Catholic mass, they thought was idolatry and therefore he needed to be executed. So having urged him to repent, uh, uh, one of the no nobles took his sword and thrust it right through him and then the others all likewise did that as well. And then they took over the castle and shortly after that, they called this young preacher by the name of John Knox and asked him to come and live in the castle with them and be their preacher. So that's where Knox began his ministry. Um, uh, Hamilton then besieged the castle uh, with the help of the French fleet. Hamilton, who was pro-Protestant, uh, right? but he was also pro-order in society and he considered this to be a threat to social order, to the peace of the kingdom. So he besieged the castle uh, with the help of a French fleet and took the Protestants captive as galley slaves in the French Navy and, and so from that ensued a period of time during which John Knox was uh, a, a galley slave, literally down deep in the bowels of, of a, a galley, rowing away. Well, let's get a little bit more acquainted with Knox. Uh, we can call him the trumpet of Scotland's Reformation. I do that in part because of the name of uh, one of his first books that he wrote. I'll introduce you to that in a, in a minute. But he was born around 1513 or 1514 in the little town of Haddington. He studied at St. Andrews University. He was ordained a priest in 1536. Uh, but not finding a parish, he made his living practicing as a lawyer instead. He converted to Protestantism approximately 1543. He accompanied George Wishart in his preaching tours all around Scotland, and then he observed Wishart's execution. 
While he was a galley slave, um, the Roman Catholic captors ordered him and all the other Scottish prisoners there who were galley slaves along with him to uh, worship in the Roman manner, including paying homage to a statue of Mary, a small, small statue of Mary. And Knox took the image of the Virgin Mary that they thrust into his face to kiss and calmly threw it overboard. And that was the end of any attempt to impose Roman Catholic worship on the Protestant prisoners. Now, let me, let me just quickly point something out. All of the Protestant reformers had a very high view of Mary. In fact, all of them believed in her perpetual virginity. I think they were mistaken to believe that. But all of them believed in her perpetual virginity. All of them uh, thought that she was... Uh, you know, one of the greatest examples of a Christian that you could ever have. What they despised was not Mary, but the abuse of Mary by the Roman Catholic Church, exalting her to positions that, uh, that simply were not biblical. So anyway, this was, this was the kind of man that John Knox was. Here he was. He was a slave in a galley. He could have been beaten, anything else. That's all right. Throw the image overboard. Um, at the time, he prophesied, and I use that word in, uh, intentionally, he prophesied that he and all the rest of these slaves who had been captured at St. Andrews would be freed by the French, and 19 months later, that was fulfilled. Uh, I say I use that word intentionally because I want to point something out. Um, the Scottish Covenanters had a very strong tradition that began really with Knox and people at his time of honoring what they considered to be actual prophets among them. They were not cessationists as far as the gifts of prophecy and tongues and healing were concerned. Nowadays, they might be among the charismatics among us. Right? So I just thought you'd like to know that. You can claim a little bit there if, you, uh, if that's your, your uh, predilection. Um, <clears throat> so, he and others were freed 19 months later. They settled in England under Edward VI, uh, who was between Henry VIII and Queen Mary, right? Bloody Mary. Uh, and um, Knox pastored churches there. He became the uh, pastor of a, of a church in Berwick, which is just about on the border between Scotland and England, uh, and was offered the bishopric of Rochester, which indicates that he was a highly respected man in the Church of England at this time. Um, but he, he declined that bishopric. Nobody knows for sure why. There's no, no evidence in his writings as to why he did. Um, but it's apparent that he didn't have huge objection to the idea of Episcopal church government, at least at that time. Uh, in 1553, though, when Mary Tudor inherited the English throne and very ably earned her title of Bloody Mary, uh, Knox fled to the continent. Uh, he pastored an English congregation in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, and had some conflicts there with his fellow pastor over precisely how to do some matters of, of uh, liturgy, of worship. Uh, he wound up leaving there, and he went to Geneva, where he co-pastored the English refugee con congregation there with the Oxford divinity professor Christopher Goodman. And Knox would later refer to this as the happiest period 
of his life um, living there in Geneva. I think I, I quoted to you uh, two weeks ago when we were talking about John Calvin in Geneva that Knox had said this was the most perfect school of Christ since the time of the apostles uh, was in Geneva. Um, there he developed a liturgy that became the principal liturgy used in the Church of Scotland from his time all the way up into the 20th century. Um, now Knox was a uh, uh, voluminous writer. I have five large volumes of small print uh, that are filled with his writings at home. And one of his first published writings was called The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. Right? I mean, just bound to make friends uh, of, <laughs> of Bloody Mary Tudor and <laughs> Mary Queen of Scots, right? Well, first off, what does this mean? Monstrous meant unnatural, right? It, it was not what would be a natural thing. And, and regiment was rule, not, you know, a, a, a group of full of troops, right? But this was an unnatural rule. And Knox tried to argue in this pamphlet that it was contrary to God's order for women to rule civilly over men. And so uh, a queen should never be the reigning monarch. The reigning monarch should always be a king. Now, Knox wrote this while Mary Tudor was on the throne and slaughtering Protestants right and left, right? Very shortly after it was published, she died, and Elizabeth I inherited the throne of England. And it doesn't take much imagination to think what Elizabeth I must have thought about this book by John Knox. She wasn't real pleased with this. And you know, there's, no, there's not actually any evidence that Knox himself later regretted having published this. But John Calvin was so opposed to it that he refused to, uh, the, that he urged the authorities in Geneva to forbid its distribution there, and they agreed with him. They, they wouldn't allow it to be distributed. Uh, that was a major mistake that Knox made. It was a, a tactical error that cost him dearly in terms of cooperation from others. Uh, in the same year, he also, though, published the appellation to, uh, which is an appeal, right, to the Scottish nobility to enact the Reformation there in Scotland and to the common people to pressure the government for Protestantism. Uh, the nobility, he argued, had a right to depose an idolatrous monarch, and he believed that Mary was an idolater because she would worship the host in the Eucharist uh, because she used images in her worship and this was idolatry he said. He also argued that the common people had the right to establish a reformed church if the government refused to do so. Religion and the truth of religion having, having orthodox religion was very very important to people in those days. Of course it's not important to anybody nowadays, right? We seem to be, we think of ourselves as so enlightened because we don't mix church and state the way they did. I wonder if that's entirely uh, wise. Uh, as, as we look, for instance, at the influx of, of, of Islam into the West, and Islam is absolutely dedicated to the destruction of religious liberty, 
Is the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or denying the free exercise thereof, is that a suicide pact? Or is it conceivable that some religions actually fall outside that? At any rate, in those days, in Knox's days, it was very important for the nation to be united religiously and politically. Um, <clears throat> Knox reflected in this appeal or the appellation to the Scottish nobility and commoners, the thought of English refugees to Geneva, John Ponet, who was Edward VI's Bishop of Winchester, and Christopher Goodman, who was Knox's co-pastor in Geneva and a professor at Oxford. Um, Christians could move beyond passive resistance to righteous rebellion and forcibly topple an idolatrous government, is what Knox was arguing here. And that thought guided the French Huguenots in the 1570s through 1600s, the Dutch sea beggars of the 1560s to 1570s, the Scottish Covenanters from the 1560s to 1680s, and the English Puritans in the British Civil Wars of the 1630s and 1640s. Uh, that became an important part of what is referred to by historians of political thought as Calvinist resistance theory. All right, uh, let's look at a few political and, and religious developments in Scotland. Uh, on the death of James V, pictured here with his wife, Mary of Guise, his daughter, Mary I, uh, inherited the throne as an infant. Her mother, Mary of Guise, uh, became the regent, meaning she basically ruled in Mary's place, right? Uh, it's a little difficult for infants to give orders to their governments, right? And uh, Mary of Guise sought to solidify the French alliance and the Roman Catholic religious domination in Scotland. Uh, in 1558, though, Mary married uh, uh, Prince, Mary married, Prince Francis of Fran France, who became King Francis II, and Scots who wanted their independence resented this because it, uh, it indicated that France would come to dominate Scotland more. You know, France is a whole, a whole lot bigger place and a whole lot wealthier place, and Mary was there, not in Scotland, and so she, her attentions were more there, and the Scots were pretty resentful at that. Um, the, uh, the French government uh, became, was militantly Roman Catholic uh, and was indeed persecuting uh, Protestants, the Huguenots, all over France. And Protestantism was growing in Scotland. And so the Protestants there, I think, naturally feared what would happen as a result of this. The case of Scottish nationalism, therefore, became increasingly identified with the cause of Protestantism in Scotland. If you were a patriotic Scot, you defended Protestantism. And if you were a Protestant, you defended Scottish nationalism. On December 3 of 1557, some Protestant nobles calling themselves Lords of the Congregation, now they were lords, right? They were Scottish lords, part of the, part of the nobility, uh, signed a band or a covenant to reform worship throughout Scotland according to the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and to promote and protect Protestant preaching. And so they're saying, we are Scottish lords, we're going to protect the Reformation, the, the Protestantization of Scotland here. Um, early in 1558, 
uh, these Protestant nobles began appointing Protestant preachers to churches and adopting the Book of Common Prayer in those churches. That led to outbreaks of iconoclasm, mobs storming into churches and destroying uh, images and icons and things of that sort. Uh, and uh, Mary's government then responded to that by persecuting the Protestants. And they burned an 82-year-old school teacher by the name of Walter Milne, again in St. Andrews. So you have Patrick Hamilton, George Wishart, now Walter Milne, all burned in St. Andrews for their faith. Um, and Knox would later write out of, uh, about that, out of Milne's ashes sprang thousands of his opinion and religion in Scotland. You know, Tertullian, way back in the second, the, the third century rather, had said, the blood of martyrs is seed. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the faithful. Uh, this was certainly observed in Scotland. Um, by the way, also pictured there is Mary, Queen of Scots, Mary Stuart, the Queen of Scots. Um, so, Mary then summoned Protestant pastors to her court and admonished them that their insistence on Protestantism was a challenge to her rule, and she urged them to stop this. Uh, the, uh, the gentry came along with the pastors in arms and basically said to Mary, you touch these guys, you touch us, and we'll fight you. So she kind of backed down from that. Knox then returned from Geneva. He preached in Dundee and in Perth. Uh, both of those cities then declared themselves officially Protestant. Um, and along with the town of Ayr down in the southwest of Scotland. And then there was more iconoclasm following from that uh, that was publicly condemned but privately supported by John Knox. Uh, the Lords of the Congregation signed a new covenant to defend Protestantism. Mary of Guise mobilized forces to oppose them. More Protestants rose, joined by Hamilton, uh, who continued to be one of the most powerful men in Scotland. And then Hamilton negotiated support for the Protestant cause in Scotland from England. So that led to a military standoff that left the Reformation in Scotland in doubt. Knox is preaching, though, all over Scotland, uh, strengthened the Protestants. And in January of 1560, an English fle fleet cut the French supply lines. The French were supplying pretty much all the troops for Mary. English fleet cut their supply lines. Uh, the lords of the congregation signed the Treaty of Berwick with England in February. And in April, the English Protestant army arrived and ended the French control in Scotland. Uh, in June, Mary of Guise died, and the French army surrendered. And July 6, the Treaty of Edinburgh brought peace with English and French troops both withdrawn from Scotland. Now, um, Mary, Queen of Scots, and John Knox had quite an interesting relationship. Uh, Mary was ido uh, widowed at age 18 when Francis II, King of France, died. Uh, she was a Roman Catholic, but her half-brother James Stuart, soon the Earl of Moray, was a Protestant, a man of awesome purity and integrity, high in John Knox's esteem, probably promised Mary that Protestants would support her claim to the English throne if she supported them. Now, in August of 1561, Mary came back to Scotland 
a widow, right? As uh, Nick Needham says, she was young, beautiful, charming, spirited, highly intelligent, and well-educated in the learning of the French Renaissance. She was popular, though Knox viewed her simply and exclusively as an enemy of the Reformation. Uh, she sided with Stuart, uh, uh, who was also the Earl of Moray. Um, she sided with him, she raised troops, and she defeated the, uh, the Roman Catholic forces. She, Mary, with Moray, defeated the Roman Catholic forces, though she was Roman Catholic, but Moray was Protestant. Mary then arranged, though, for Mass to continue to be celebrated in her private worship services at the Palace of Holyrood uh, in Edinburgh. And uh, that led to a popular uprising because the common people, led by Knox, regarded uh, the Mass as idolatry and were convinced that Christian states should not tolerate idolatry. In fact, many of them believed that God's judgment would come on the nation and therefore on themselves if they permitted it to continue. Uh, my friend Marvin Alasky wrote a wonderful book, Fighting for Liberty and Virtue, in which he points out that if you actually read the pamphlets of the time of the American Revolution, at least as powerful and widespread a motive for separating from England in the time of our revolution at least as powerful a motive as escaping English domination and taxation without representation, and all of those sort of things, was the other motive that the people were saying, and especially the pastors in America were saying, England is so morally corrupt, it has to bring God's judgment down on it, and if we are in submission to it, we'll suffer that judgment too. So that was a, a similarity between the Scottish Reformation and America's uh, revolution. Knox and Moray became rivals. Knox always regarded Mary as the niece of the Guise nobility in France who were chiefly responsible for the persecution of French, French Protestants. Uh, Mary summoned Knox four different times to talk to him and to try to get him to back off. And all four times, she really regretted that she had done that. Knox just had a, a tremendously powerful personal presence, and he spoke very, very boldly with great moral authority. And indeed, uh, one time he drove her to hysterical tears. Um, you can see a, an artist's rendering of that. It's imaginary, but that's, that's kind of the idea. Uh, that she was just in tears as he confronted her about her own sins. Um, she put him on trial for treason, and the Privy Council acquitted him. Right? Well, Mary, Mary uh, is really a tragic figure, a very tragic figure. She was, as, as I had said, young, beautiful, charming, spirited, highly intelligent, well-educated, uh, and, and very popular with a lot of the Scottish people. Uh, but she brought about her own downfall. Uh, she married the Roman Catholic Henry Stuart, or Lord Darnley, and that alienated the Protestant nobles from her. Then uh, she summoned Moray, who refused to, uh, to cooperate with her. So she declared him and others rebels and marched on them with her forces, largely French, and they fled to England. Then she had an affair with her Italian counselor, David Riccio, or, or Rizzio, but 
pronounced Riccio, and <clears throat> Darnley then, her husband, plotted successfully to assassinate uh, Riccio uh, when he found Riccio with her dining in her supper room. Uh, so the affair was pretty obvious. Uh, Mary <clears throat> then had another affair with the Protestant Earl of Bothwell, James Hepburn, a married man himself. So two married people having this affair here. And uh, uh, <clears throat> Darnley then uh, was murdered on February 8 of 1567, probably by Bothwell, who then divorced his wife and married Mary in a Protestant ceremony. Um, <clears throat> the Protestant nobles were already hostile to her. Now Roman Catholics were hostile to her as well. She had cut off both potential allies. Uh, the Protestant James Douglas, the Earl of Morton, raised an army, trapped her in Bothwell, demanded Bothwell be turned over for trial for murder. Bothwell escaped to Norway, but Mary was left alone. She surrendered to Morton. She was imprisoned. She abdicated the throne on July 24 of 1567, uh, which made her newborn son, James VI, King of England, and Moray, James Stuart, regent uh, over James VI. <clears throat> Mary then fled to England. Elizabeth imprisoned her because she suspected that Mary was a threat to her throne. Mary had been claiming all along that she had a right to uh, a claim to the, the succession in England. Um, Elizabeth imprisoned her, and after the Babington plot to assassinate Elizabeth was exposed, and there was potential that Mary had been involved in that, Elizabeth ordered her execution. So she was executed in 1587. During Mary's imprisonment in England, the Scots were divided. There was the Queen's party, which sought her restoration, and there was the King's party, led by Moray, which was more committed to Protestantism and supported King James VI, this little infant king. Civil war ensued there in Scotland, and the King's party triumphed. That led to what's called the Reformation Parliament, uh, in July and August of 1560. Uh, the most important parliament in Scot Scotland's history, this is referred to by most historians, and it shaped Scotland's religion and culture for centuries to come. Uh, on August 17, the Scots Confession was approved, drawn by six Johns, John uh, Knox, Willock, Win Winram, Spottiswood, Rowe, and Douglas, all six named John. Um, I could tell you a story about Calvin's too, but that's all right. Um, the first part of that summarized the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creeds, and some reformed emphasis, especially on election. The remaining 13 articles affirmed the supreme authority of Scripture and other basic Protestant convictions. Now, this was reformed, and yet one of its most striking features was the strength and richness of its Eucharistic teaching. It emphasized the real sacramental eating and drinking of Christ's flesh and blood by the faithful. But it didn't embrace either transubstantiation or consubstantiation, which we've talked about in the past. Uh, it had a couple of unusual emphases. Uh, uh, one was on salvation history, the importance of seeing what God has done all through history and, and sh following the Bible as as a story, as a unified story. Um, Eleven days ago, I took up 
uh, a new practice. I'm reading 20 chapters of my Bible every day now, and I'm seeing the wholeness of it as I never did before. I used to think in terms of have I mastered the Bible uh, with detailed studies. Now I'm thinking the Bible has mastered me because of reading it this way. It's very exciting to me. On August 24, Parliament outlawed the Roman Catholic Mass in Scotland. It acknowledged Reformed preachers alone as competent to administer the sacraments. It abolished all papal jurisdiction in Scotland. Uh, it adopted Knox's Book of Common Order, the version, his version of the Genevan liturgy as the, the liturgy of the Kirk of Scotland. Um, it adopted Knox's first Book of Discipline, which was a comprehensive blueprint for a Protestant society. <coughs> Uh, the Presbyterian church polity was taught in that. Elders exercised moral discipline. Deacons administered finances. And it set forth a program of poor relief that was unequaled in Western Europe until the modern welfare state. Uh, it, it also had a massive educational program. Every parish was to have a school, and every child was to be made literate in that school. Uh, much of this program went unfulfilled historically. The nobles feared for their power, and so they seized all the old church property and made it their own. The ministers were left to survive on a pittance. There was no real way of providing for their salaries. Um, <clears throat> and much of the educational program was only spottily achieved. Nonetheless, um, for, uh, uh, nonetheless uh, Scotland became probably the most literate country in the history of the world. Literacy among Scots by the end of the 16th century was nearly 100% higher than it is here today, significantly higher. Um, <clears throat> some legacies here, that, uh, well that was one of them, they became so literate. Uh, there was also the English-Scottish bond with deep-rooted anti-Catholic feeling, uh, though the Highlands remained strongly Roman Catholic. And on November 24, 1572, Knox died in Edinburgh, and the Earl of Morton wrote, there lies one who neither feared nor flattered any flesh. Now, um, is John Knox another founding father of America? You'll recall that uh, Leopold von Ranke and J.H. Uh, Merle d'Aubigny called John Calvin the virtual founder of America because of the impact of his teaching on America's founders, right? Well, his influence was largely through John Knox, whose political theory influenced Samuel Rutherford, author of the book Lex Rex, or The Law is King. Remember I said the Covenanters pushed this notion of a government of laws and not of men, right? Uh, so Samuel Rutherford published Lex Rex. James Stewart of Goodtrees, uh, who was the subject of my doctoral dissertation, uh, and James Sterling of Paisley co-authored a book called Naphtali or the Wrestlings of the Church of Scotland published in 1667 that defended the idea of the right of the people to rebel against tyrannous government uh, then Stuart uh, alone wrote a book called Jus Populi Vindicatum or the right of the people to defend their lives, liberty and covenanted religion in 1669 and those influenced a man by the name of John Witherspoon. Reverend John Witherspoon was the pastor of the church at Paley, where Sterling had pastored before, and he was called to become the president of the College of New Jersey, which we later think of as Princeton. And there he was also professor of moral philosophy. And in his uh, classes, he had, among other people, 
uh, James Madison, who drafted the Constitution of the United States, 18 other members of the Continental Congress and the Constitutional Convention, 37 judges, uh, including, uh, and I, I left out the number of the Supreme Court justices, I think it was three, uh, 10 cabinet officers, 28 U.S. senators, and 49 United States congressmen. And that's when Congress was a whole lot smaller than it is now, right? And he was a member of both the Continental Congress and the Constitutional Convention and signed both the Declaration and the Constitution. This is amazing for a clergyman. And he brought these ideas from James Stewart and Samuel Rutherford and John Knox to America. Uh, roughly two-thirds of Americans at the time of the revolu revolution were reformed Calvinists. Over half of the officers and soldiers in the Continental Army were Presbyterians, heirs of John Knox. Uh, the British Prime Minister Horace Walpole had Witherspoon in mind when he complained that Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. Right? Uh, the Declaration of Independence was a covenanter document similar to the Scottish Covenants. Every clause of its principles paragraph, you know, we hold these truths to be uh, self-evident. Every single clause in that you can footnote to almost identical language in James Stewart of Goodtree's Jus Populi Vindicatum. Um, the Constitution of the United States of America was a covenant among 13 states creating a republican as opposed to a monarchical or democratic form of government. It was a federal covenantal government by consent of the governed with limited constitutionally stated powers, separation and balance of powers, legislative, executive, and judicial, elective representation, graded levels from lower to higher with authority running from lower to higher rather than vice versa, and uh, essentially it, it was Presbyterianism applied to civil government uh, in a multi-state confederation. So I think it's appropriate for us to think of John Knox as another founding father of America. So that's the end of this one. Thanks for your attention.